Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, you're listening to the New Books Network. I am Joe Crowder, and I'm speaking with Maeve Ryan, who has written a new book put out by Yale University Press with the title Humanitarian Governance and the British Anti-Slavery World System. Welcome to the New Books Network, Maeve. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, first question for you is, who is Maeve Ryan? Well, that is, that's a very profound question, Joe. Um, I am, I'm very lucky. I get to be two quite different things in my work. My, my job um, gets me, uh, gives me the opportunity to be two different versions, I guess, of Maeve Ryan professionally. I wear these different hats and, uh, and in that sense, engage with very different areas of, um, of scholarship and engage with very different types of communities, so academic and non-academic. Um, First and foremost, I'm a historian. I'm a historian of 19th century British history initially, a little bit of Irish history at the very beginning. I focus on British foreign policy, the British Empire, the history of diplomacy and international relations more broadly. Really interested in the emergence of the European empires in that period, really mostly after the second uh, after the French Revolution. Um, I also think a lot about things like the hegemonic transition from the British Empire to uh, what we saw with, with the uh, United States in, in the uh, 20th century, and bigger themes around the emergence of international order, statecraft, and strategy making right through the 20th century into the 21st century. So there's quite a lot of like different types of history in there, um, and I'm actually currently thinking a lot about climate change and international order and sort of the relationship between climate change and future international order, but really started off with my feet very much in the 19th century. But I also, the other hat that I wear is I'm a co-founder and uh, the co-director of the Centre for Grand Strategy at King's College London. And in this uh, I, in this role, I get to convene a very vibrant research community. It's one of our school's busiest. Um, we're networked across um, King's College itself, networked in, with colleagues in the UK and internationally. And I get to mentor quite a lot of early career academics and PhD students and convene research seminars on various different themes, things including, as I mentioned, world order and the history of British foreign policy, new program on the Indo-Pacific region, which um, for, for those of us who work in the strategic studies area, find this is a key emerging strategic theatre in the coming decades. And through the centre, I also run a series of policy engagement projects uh, with the UK government mostly, um, things like, places, uh, like the, uh, the uh, FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office, the Ministry of Defence and the National Security Secretariat and the uh, Cabinet Office. So the, the purpose of our centre was through three different routes, through education, research and engagement, the aim is to bring a greater degree of historical and strategic expertise to bear on contemporary policymaking and the doing of strategy in the present day. So I know that you've read the book and you're probably scratching your head about the connections between this sort of work and the book, um, uh, in the book, which is very much uh, a history uh, based in the 19th century with some resonances in the present day, which I tried to draw out in the epilogue. But I'll just return to what I said before. I feel um, very fortunate that I've been able to carve out this twin track career, um, which is very, you know, done in, in no small part to where I am at 
King's College London and the community, a very extraordinary, I think, an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary group of scholars and former practitioners and being mentored by them and guided by them has allowed me as a historian to really engage with and connect my work with questions in, in the present day. So I feel very fortunate. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it, it, to use a word that you just used, uh, extraordinary, that that is the purpose of history, right? I mean, we're supposed to make connections and engage um, and, and you're just living that dream. That's, that's fantastic. When did you know that you actually wanted to become a historian? Well, um, I don't think I, I, it took me a long time to be absolutely sure I wanted to pursue an academic career, but I knew that history was a passion of mine really early on. So I, I actually didn't study it in school. I studied physics, chemistry, <laughs> maths. Um, uh, but when I went to university, I, I decided to study uh, history and English literature. My major was in, um, in history. And uh, this is a, tu- a, a dual track degree at um, Trinity College Dublin. And uh, I actually think I thought I wanted to be a journalist back back in the day, but when I got there, I found the history department just completely beyond anything I had expected. It offered such a terrific program. And as my major, that was a four-year degree. In the last two years of that, I was working under the mentorship of uh, two extraordinary professors, um, Professor Jane Olmeyer and Professor Patrick Gagan. And the whole emphasis of what we were doing there was working with primary source material and looking back on that as, you know, third and fourth year undergrads. And actually, we did some of this in second year, too. It was amazing. So with Jane Olmeyer, who's a leading scholar of 17th century um, British Isles, we were working in the Trinity Long Library. For anyone who's been to Trinity College Dublin, this is the famous old library. We're working in there, you know, just for undergraduate seminars, working with the 1641 depositions in their original manuscript form. And equally with Professor Gagan, we're working on all sorts of um, primary material relating to Irish revolutionary period, the Irish Act of Union and so on. And this is where I got the bug for history. Um, my undergrad dissertation, I had the opportunity to just go across the road into the National Library of Ireland and work with a whole um, set of uncatalogued and, and completely unused manuscripts um, on topics relating to all of the shenanigans around the Irish Act of Union in 1801. And there, as a, as a final year undergraduate student, just rummaging around looking for something for my undergrad dissertation, I found the first known documentary evidence of a piece of bribery being used by the anti-union side. It was a receipt for a bribe. We knew that this was bribes were being paid by the other side, but we'd, we'd never seen evidence that it was, it was happening on the anti-union side. And that just gave me this this love for the this thrill I guess the detective work uh, it also gave me material for my first publication so that was kind of what hooked me in and this was in a way it was pure history you know really rummaging through the archives and looking for exciting new things um, and I loved it I love pure history but I was also really interested in thinking about ways to connect that with more contemporary questions and I think now I realized that that was a sort of an, an interest in applied history as a term which I didn't I, I know anything about at that point um, but what I decided to do instead of pursuing a history, a direct kind of history master's uh, track towards a PhD, I went to study an MPhil in international relations. Um, I went to the University of Cambridge and I was incredibly lucky to be supervised by Professor Brendan Sims there. And I took kind of a history track through that MPhil. He supervised some research um, that I did for my dissertation and suggested to me that I look at the diplomatic and international legal implications and consequences of Britain's abolition of the slave trade. This was around the time of the bicentenary and it was a big hot topic. um, And I thought this sounds very interesting. So I already had that interest in British foreign policy and the history of diplomacy and what you might call statecraft. But then 
during this master's project, those interests came into contact with the history of slavery, the slave trade, and um, the emergence of ideas of humanitarian intervention and the development of uh, governance systems um, uh, as a result of some of these interventions. Um, so for those um, listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with the abolition of the slave trade and it's the, the early history of this, when the British passed the 1807 Abolition Act, this is a piece of domestic UK law, abolishing uh, Britain, the, the involvement of Britons in the transatlantic slave trade. It became illegal for Britons to engage in, in slave trading and for slave ships to pass through British territorial waters or for British flagships to trade in, in um in slaves on the high seas. Um, and so after 1807, when the act came into force in 1808, the Royal Navy was sent out and they were seizing um, slave ships on the coast of West Africa, partly in British territorial waters, waters claimed colonially by the British, and often on the high seas. And the complicating factor of this is that in 1808, as people might be aware, this is during the period of the, the wars against France, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and so for the first seven or so years of this campaign against the slave trade, the British had an set of legal rights to seize slave ships on the high seas um, as long as they were flagged as uh, the flag that they were flying uh, was that of a belligerent power or um, in the um, in those wars or was a neutral suspected of, of in some way um, um, supporting the uh, the opposing side so the British were engaging in this naval suppression campaign and uh, Brendan Sims prompt to me was you know his suggestion to me uh, was to, to look into this you know there's this assumption that this created diplomatic problems for the uh, United Kingdom um, you know sending Royal Navy ships seizing what was essentially other people's private property um, had this created problems was it more than just a few angry diplomatic notes did it go deeper than that and so I was looking at this and not finding really evidence of really significant costs paid by Britain for this. And then thinking a bit about what this told us about the slow emergence of norms um, in the international system against slave trading and ultimately against slavery as an institution. But in the course of that research, I became really interested in what wasn't really talked about in some of those diplomatic and legal histories, which was what happened when those ships that had been seized on the high seas, when they were brought ashore and they went through this legal process, what happened to the human cargoes on board those ships? Um, and so I started looking into this more from my PhD topic. And, um, and from there, you know, this is where the book emerged from. This is, um, <clears throat> just to remind listeners, this is Joe Crowder. I'm talking with Maeve Ryan, um, who has recently published with Yale University Press, Humanitarian Governance in the British Anti-Slavery World System. And Maeve, there's a, a couple of things that you hit upon that I, I, I want to get back to. And, and one of them is the, the archives. I mean, uh, the place where uh, where we, we just get turned on as historians. I mean, it's just the things that we find uh, and locate. Uh, uh, and in your book, I noted that you've got European archives, you've got Caribbean archives, you've got North American archives, you've got uh, even African archives in Sierra Leone. Um, did you go to all these places? <laughs> I went to most of these places and I had the great good fortune of having extremely helpful archivists and also friends in the uh, in the academic community who shared with me copies of some that I couldn't get hold of personally. So I spent quite a lot of time in Sierra Leone and um, and I've also traveled to um, uh, traveled to North America. Really, the ones that I struggled to get hold uh, struggled to get to in, in person were the um, archives in the Bahamas. But I have been to Cuba um, and my hope had been to actually go to Zanzibar. That was my 
when my original plan was to as part of the expansion of um, from what had been the PhD project into this wider book, I'd, I'd intended to go to Zanzibar and look at some of the material related to liberated Africans in the uh, Indian Ocean. Um, but I was also very fortunate to meet Matthew Hopper, who's uh, who's done a lot of really great work on liberated Africans in the Indian Ocean, and actually realised he, he was very generous and very kindly shared a lot of material with me. But I also realised that he he was more than covering this, so I was able to focus my energies much more on the Atlantic world. And I'm I'm grateful for that because I think the book is a stronger project as a result. I, I think it's a fantastic book, and I want to start with the uh, title because I need to, after reading your book, I need to reset the listeners' minds as to what humanitarianism meant in the early 19th century, because it's decidedly not how we perceive it today in the 21st. So what is this um, humanitarian governance that you uh, have written so wonderfully about? Well, um, so there are a few a few things to say about that, really. So first of all, humanitarianism, and I would point out that this doesn't mean the same thing. It actually wasn't, I, I use the term in the book, but I do flag this in the uh, introduction that this wouldn't necessarily have been a term used by contemporaries about themselves. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's actually the, the term humanitarianism was often used kind of pre, or pre humanitarian actually to describe a person was uh, often used pejoratively um, uh, in, the, in the earliest uh, period. And there's some, I mean, really interesting things to say around that. But um, the, the one of the things I was trying to do with this book was to interrogate and get de- get a deeper understanding of the earliest origins of humanitarianism. And I was building here on Michael Barnett's work, uh, his groundbreaking book, Empire of Humanity. And he looks at modern day humanitarianism, which, you know, listeners might be familiar with, kind of manifests in, in two ways that he identifies. One, that emergency kind of humanitarianism. So, you know, disaster relief, you know, flying out supplies to a place where there's just been a typhoon or, or a hurricane or earthquake or something, establishing that kind of temporary relief and support. So that sort of emergency intervention, you know, uh, to, to address urgent need. And then what he calls alchemical, um, and what this means really is sort of developmental or about more slowly changing and adapting a situation. That type of humanitarianism is a bit more in that kind of development space. So changing the conditions that have been creating um, whatever the urgent human need is. Um, and, you know, he identifies these as two quite separate strands of humanitarianism and I and I'd certainly agree with that um, and he identifies two different points of origin for those and what I do with this book is I build upon this a little bit and I bring it back slightly further and say actually I think that they both emerged in the same place that you know the battle of Solferino isn't the the first place we see this emergency intervention and, and equally the um the abolition of the slave trade or, or rather the abolition of slavery and the kind of developmental piece around that isn't where we first see um that developmental um humanitarianism but actually if you go a little bit further back to about 1808 you start to see these experiments that emerge uh, as a result of the abolition act of 1807 uh, and and the point of origin is, is really the same for both and the point of origin i identify is this network or what I consider like an archipelago, a a connected network all over the Atlantic world and and the Indian Ocean of these liberated African establishments where both the emergency needs of people who are being brought ashore from slave ships, but also the more developmental society changing, remolding type uh, work is being done in kind of the same institution and using the same bureaucratic infrastructure. 
And, and on the, on the uh, definitional point about humanitarian governance, just to mention that uh, humanitarian governance is a term I use throughout the book. But just to be clear, I use it in the sense of um, discourse and stated aims rather than measurable humanitarian outcomes. So it's really about the approach and the intent. Um, and it's used to refer to the framing of types of imperial and colonial governance and those sorts of experiments in a language of a higher moral purpose. So it's identifying where there's a pursuit of what would be considered by, by those individuals to be kind of humanitarian goals, although they would not necessarily have used that term, they would think of it as altruistic or benevolent goals, using the exercise of state power and designing interventions on the basis of human need, but using what, um, and I'm borrowing a term here from Alan Lester and Faye Dussart, um, use a term like uh, articulating what they're trying to do in a moral vernacular. So this is this is how I'm defining humanitarian governance. Uh, and that that clearly comes through in, in the book. Um, and it's the roots of abolitionism that has always um, sparked my interest. I'm, I'm an 18th century guy. Um, so, you know, I, I read John Wesley's Thoughts on Slavery, published 1774, Uh George Whitefield had, uh, you know, letters to the inhabitants of Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina, 1740s. Um, these evangelical roots are so profound in abolitionist, as you put it, moral panic. Um, so we get to the Slave Trade Abolition Act of 1807, but there's a whole lot of work that went on prior to that. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of clear that up a little bit for um, people who don't really understand the roots of abolitionism. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a couple of things. I mean, there's so many things I'd like to say about this. Um, but uh, it's a, such a fascinating question. You know, it is honestly such a fascinating question. Is why, did it, like, why in this, um, let's say, Western world, just for the sake of uh, giving it a shorthand, this kind of Anglo-American world, um, to a lesser extent across some of the European states, why do we see this post-Enlightenment articulation, very strong articulation post-Enlightenment of the early seeds of a kind of anti-slavery impetus when slavery is part of human society and human civilization for you know thousands of years we go back to the earliest cuneiform um uh, inscriptions and we see references to slaves we see references to people being taken in war and enslaved so it's it's kind of profoundly odd that as uh, at, at a particular moment and really quite quickly uh, th- there is this pivot what seems like a pivot in terms of um the acceptability the moral acceptability of slavery and lots of people have grappled with this question. And one person I would point to maybe above all others, I think that the, the giant on whose shoulders most, most of us try to stand when we understand this question is David Brian Davis, um, whose work is written several books, as, as I'm sure you're very familiar, has written several books interrogating this question, uh, one of which, Slavery and uh, and Human Progress, I think it's called, is particularly interesting. But really trying to grapple with that question in the age of revolutions, where this comes from. And the simple answer is, I think there's probably still no consensus on this. Is it you know, traceable to elements of a religious revival? Certainly the evangelical dimension is important. Is it traceable to just changing ideas, um, you know, in, during the Enlightenment, sort of changing ideas about the nature of the individual? Is it, but I mean, it's it's really quite difficult to say. I mean, it can be in some in some communities possibly ascribed to multiple factors, um, and you know, it's possible that some in the community were motivated by, say, religious um, uh, imperatives. Others were interested in being part of a kind of fashion. You know, you could even see it an element of virtue signaling, as we would call it in the present day, although it's a horrifying anachronism to talk about it in the past 
But, you know, we see these huge numbers of petitions being sent back, you know, these, these petition scrolls going around the whole of, uh, the, of the UK or, or Britain um, and, you know, looking for um, looking for this sort of mass consensus and this petitioning campaigns being led by abolitionists, but going to every village, every village hall and trying to whip up this local level support, this grassroots support for the what became the Abolition Act of 1807. And those, you know, those, again, speaking about the archives, you can go to the National Archives today and you can look at these and it's a real profound testament. So extraordinary, I can't remember actually what the exact proportion of the population that signed these petitions were, but it's an extraordinarily high proportion. So, you know, it, it, trying to interrogate what it was that motivated these people and animated these people is fascinating. One other thing I would mention is the timing of the... Um, the timing of the final success of the abolitionists, because obviously it was it was a slow and incremental process where you know when you look at the legal record, a number of different legal instruments are being uh, created and passed and going through legislatures, not just in Britain but elsewhere. Um, in this in this period towards the end of the eighteenth century, start of the nineteenth century, um, one of the things that uh, Christopher Leslie Brown has pointed to in his work. Um, uh, moral capital is the question of the importance or the, the significance for, for Britons of the loss of the American colonies, as we like to refer to it, <laughs> as you like to call it, independence. Um, you know, how much did that matter that uh, this, you know, this kind of body blow to British self-image and prestige had happened, the loss of these colonies, a very controversial um, uh, sort of set of um, of events within Britain that had profound consequences for, for Britain's own domestic politics and really divided opinion. Um, after that, I mean, there's uh, one, one theory, one interpretation of all of this is after the loss of those colonies and in America's, the United States decision to go, uh, go it alone on their own path, that there was, a, let's say, an incentive for Britons to start to identify reasons why they were different and reasons why they were better and to point to the ongoing slave holding um, character of the United States and the defense of, of slavery by many of, of, leading, of the leading um, figures within that um, political establishment and to start to, to think about you know, grounds for feeling morally superior. I mean, certainly this is an argument that's that's uh, tested in Christopher Leslie Brown's work, among others, and I, I think it's quite an interesting thread to pull. Yeah, and um, in, I, I need to, to to kind of also put this in time, um, in in the sense that okay, we have the Sierra Leone Company. Um, they request Britain to please take charge of this operation here. It's costing us too much money. Um, and once the state chose to um, run um, this colony, Sierra Leone. Um, once these captured slave ships are brought into Freetown, I think is um, we get customs officials that are now responsible for uh, sheltering, feeding, uh, distributing these uh, liberated Africans. And I, that just struck me that it was customs officials that are doing this. And I wondered what, you know, what does this say about the culture of 1808, about how liberated Africans were perceived by the British state, uh, indeed its society at the same time, despite what abolitionists were doing. You've picked up on a really important point there, which is the characterization of um, enslaved people on slave ships. When you look at the Abolition Act, the text of this Abolition Act that passed the House uh, Houses of Parliament in 1807, there are, I, th- I think it's 27 articles in this act and 26 of them relate to the um, the, the, the inanimate 
elements of the slave ship so that the ship itself and the um, you know the inanimate cargo um, and so on it also relate to the legal instruments and, and activities required to render this ship as prize the bounties that would be paid to the captors and these bounties were paid uh, to uh, partly to incentivize uh, Royal Navy officers to engage in this interdiction as we call it, the sort of seizure of property um, so yeah 26 of the 27 articles relate to this only one relates to the people on board um and and that to me is quite is quite interesting and is quite revealing um the 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 journey that the uh that the, the people go on the sort of legal journey is, is rendered from from being um considered private property as you know as, as as would any other trade good to then being transformed legally by the courts established through the abolition act so in the first instance um uh, vice admiralty courts and later mixed commission courts representing the uh, different states involved in a bilateral treaty but in the first instance just british uh, vice admiralty courts these courts were established um and, and empowered to, to do this kind of legal chicanery really to transform these people from legally bought and sold property in the eyes of of the law to something else to to, um, to people and so the you know the presence or the the, the role of the collector of customs in in any harbor um or port to which a slave a captured slave ship was brought uh, it's it's logical in in that kind of uh, if you if you get yourself into the mindset of the people who are framing this act you know it's obviously abhorrent to uh, our our modern day sensibilities but it is logical to them because it all fit in that space of seizure of property and prize turning things into prize in a time of war and so as I show in the book um, you know Sierra Leone it, it kind of looms large in this book because it's it's an interesting um, and one of the largest and most complex elaboration of one of these establishments created to uh, administer and to um, to, 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 to to first of all you know address the urgent emergency feeding and sheltering needs clothing needs but then also to uh, facilitate the um, the integration of these survivors of the slave trade into colonial society. So in Sierra Leone, you see uh, initially the collector of customs doing this work, completely overwhelmed very, very quickly. And then you see um, within a few years, actually not, not immediately, but after a huge amount of human suffering and, and uh, upheaval and tragedy, um, the, um, the metropolitan British government and the parliament eventually vote to create a kind of bureaucratic infrastructure, um, a department uh, for what were called um, uh, what be, ended up being called the Liberated African Department. In other sites around the Atlantic world, there are places where ships are being brought ashore, including in the British West Indies and in Cape Town and, um, uh, well, Cape Colony, modern day Cape Town, and eventually St. Helena in the South Atlantic. Um, and you know, varying degrees of complexity of what kind of infrastructure is created in those places. In some of those places, it's very, it's very rudimentary and it stays quite rudimentary for most of the period. Now, I'd like to get to those, um, but I, I want to s- stick with Sierra Leone for uh, a, a couple of minutes because I, I think our, our listeners might need some background as to how Britain uh, actually acquired Sierra Leone and the pr- early purposes of it. Um, and there's a Halifax connection, and that Halifax connection goes to, well, the American War for Independence. And wondered if you could speak to that real quick. Sure. Um, so the colony of Sierra Leone is quite unusual in that it was uh, founded as a private venture in 1787, I believe, and it was intended. It was founded by abolitionists and you know through a private subscription and so on. Not a not a crown endeavor. And for those who are interested in the expansion of the British Empire more broadly, um, while this is an unusual thing and a, you know an experimental colony founded expressly to create a kind of 
planted settlement of anti-slavery values on the west coast of Africa. So, so it was in the promotional literature. Um, you know, this sort of accidental inverted commas uh, expansion of territory is echoed actually more broadly across the empire. So, you know, quite often things are opened up uh, by traders as they saw it and then you know it, situations are created and the, the thing becomes less viable and, uh, and and local actors seek to kind of undermine or to remove the colonists and then you know then the crown comes in so actually that pattern is repeated quite frequently across the British Empire and Sierra Leone in that sense follows that pattern so it's established as a private enterprise um, as I say, it's by, by abolitionists, the idea is to prove the viability of free labor. And so they're going to establish, they're going to plant this little colony on the peninsula of Sierra Leone. Anyone who's ever been to Sierra Leone will know that it's it's, it's this little peninsula, very mountainous, uh, uh, which is where the name um, comes from. And um, and it's, it's at the mouth of this estuary, a deep water port. And in lots of sense, I mean, for those who know the geography of West Africa, will know that quite a lot of, of the West African coast is kind of beaches and, and sandbars, and it's quite difficult to navigate for, um, you know, for, for the sorts of ships and transport systems that were available at the time. So Sierra Leone offers some really unusual opportunities, but it, it, this was the idea that it was going to be this planted colony, and it was supposed to show through kind of model communities and so on, it was supposed to show the viability of free labor. If, if slavery didn't exist, look what people could do, essentially. Uh, it was quite difficult to populate that colony and keep it populated. The initial group of people who were sent out did not thrive. Uh, local, while the land had been um, uh, apparently, supposedly handed over by agreement, then you know, that um, that didn't last. And so, and and also during the the wars with France and, and with others during over that kind of during the Napoleonic Wars, you had a few attacks on the settlement, and so it wasn't thriving. It was being attacked, and it was generally speaking not proving um, uh, particularly successful. Um, and so you had a few injections, um, uh, attempts by abolitionists and the uh, the directors of this company to, in, to bring over more settlers and to uh, shore up that ailing colony. And one of those groups is what uh, a group called the Nova Scotians, who were um, um, otherwise known as Black Loyalists and, and families coming over after the uh, War of Independence, those who'd been promised their freedom, um, uh, enslaved people who'd been promised their freedom if they fought on the side of the British, then transplanted over to Sierra Leone t- um, to, to live in this colony. Equally, another group of Maroons. Um, so these were people brought over from uh, Jamaica, I believe, uh, a few, uh, maybe a decade or so, two decades later. Um, and so there's a pre-existing colony there um, before the liberated Africans are brought ashore. And this is one of the reasons why when uh, the Abolition Act passes and comes into force uh, in 1808, Sierra Leone is seen as a, a viable and sensible place um, by these abolitionists to bring the slave ships and to liberate these enslaved people. And, and, and it, it was seen as not just an available site where there's a deep water port and the navy ships could could come ashore um it was also seen as an opportunity to populate the colony with you know young healthy labor ready individuals whose work could be used to shore up uh, and make that that experiment more viable um so okay so the state takes over um 1807 1808 and um a governor is appointed thomas Perinette thompson and I, I kind of read your account here, and he comes across, and I might be wrong on this, so correct me, but he comes across as kind of a, a hero-type figure. He's, like, way ahead of his time. Um, and, and I was wondering, did he misinterpret his orders? Was he a true abolitionist rather than someone who was, you know, supposed to follow what the government wanted? Um, he, he says there's moral limits to what we're doing here. Um, he was kind of concerned. 
that's interesting um, that he comes across as kind of a hero. <laughs> it wasn't really my intent. Um, <laughs> um, I find him a really interesting character. Uh, not, not that he's a, I'm not trying to say that he's, he's sort of the villain here, um, but he's a very interesting character. And um, Patrick Scanlon's work, he, he has a book out uh, a couple of years before mine, I think, called Freedom's Debtors. He goes into to this particular character in much more uh, depth. Um, and I found his research quite useful in this regard. But it's really difficult to to get to grips with exactly uh, what this man's personality was. When you read his letters, he occasionally comes across as quite unhinged and very angry and very, um, uh, you know, extremely determined to um, to criticize what he found, everything he found, and to um, and to you know call the attention of the Secretary of State to the um, to the. Uh, um, corruption and malpractice that he he believed to have found so let's go back a second so the the um the passage of the abolition act happens in 1807 and then uh, in 1808 the thing comes into force but separately and it's a separate process the the directors of the sierra leone company persuade the british parliament to accept responsibility for the colony and this is actually quite contentious um, but it does get passed and one of the arguments for this is that actually so many individuals have been brought over both from the uk from from nova scotia um and then and and uh, and, and from jamaica and so there were actually some pre-existing groups of settlers there who um who needed support and it would be wrong for the british state to just kind of walk away and wash their hands of it albeit the the colony had proven extremely expensive had been subsidized by the state for quite a while Anyway, it becomes a crown colony that comes into force. And so there is this kind of odd overlap period where the first slave ships uh, are, are being brought to Sierra Leone. And it's, it's a Sierra Leone company governor who's, who's ministering this. And then it's uh, Thomas uh, Pernet Thompson who comes over and, and he takes over as the first crown uh, colony governor. He arrives there and he, he immediately is asking questions about what happened to the first people who were landed from the first ships. Um, and... And what he finds is that actually those first, uh, you know, the first couple of hundred or so uh, individuals are, are are essentially treated as slaves. So the, the Abolition Act only allows, when I mentioned there was one article in the Abolition Act that dealt with and provided for what should happen to these uh, these individuals released from the slave ships, that article provided only two routes. One is apprenticeship and one is enlistment in the armed forces. And apprenticeship is essentially like indentured servitude and it's supposed to be time limited enlistment was supposed to be for life and without pension so not a great not a great deal um and already you know when you when you think this is all th- these are the only two routes that were allowed for and this is what was what, what this is what the collector of customs was supposed to do take these people give them some clothes give them some food and as quickly as possible get them off the government books by um handing them out as indentured laborers or or handing them over to the army um uh, or to a lesser extent to the navy um, and that was it so the when, when this new crown colony governor arrives, he finds that the people, most, most of the people who had been uh, apprenticed in this way had not experienced a kind of different condition to what a slave would have experienced. And uh, many of whom had actually run away and been recaptured and thrown into the jail. And he's horrified by this. He professes to be horrified by this. He professes to be horrified by the whole idea of apprenticeship. He, he says it's, you know, it's, it goes against the spirit of uh, anti-slavery, against the spirit of the Abolition Act. And he initially uh, professes to believe that the um, the abolitionists in, in the UK, and who had actually endorsed him and had kind of groomed him for this role and sent him out there. He's young, he's in his 20s. And I think he's the son of of a friend of one of the prominent abolitionists and he, uh, he i think he was seen as kind of a malleable 
new crown governor. And in fact, the opposite is true. He sees these people maybe as mis- initially as misguided and deluded who'd been, they'd been deceived by the people on the ground in the colony and, and it had all been done differently to how they expected. But over time, quite quickly, he, he comes to see them as, um, as the bad guys, really, you know, that, that people like Zachary Macaulay, who's quite prominent in this period, uh, one of the leading abolitionists, that he is, you know, uh, conspiring and conniving to perpetuate slavery uh, in West Africa under the guise of abolitionism. And I don't know, it's, it's hard to tell from from um, from Thompson's uh, uh, correspondence on this because he's writing these increasingly fevered letters to uh, Castlereagh, Secretary of State. He's writing to his his girlfriend, and he's it just becomes across as more and more paranoid and conspiratorial. Although you know you also can read into it the kind of scales falling away from the eyes of this young impressionable person who believed you know everything he had been told about anti slavery. So yeah, it's, it's quite hard to judge, but he does push back quite hard and he puts his career on the line. And ultimately gets recalled. I mean, he goes on to have quite a successful career uh, elsewhere, but he, he, you know, he is recalled in disgrace. Uh, I don't think the Secretary of State ever bothers to answer any of his letters. Uh, you're listening to the New Books Network. This is Joe Crowder. I'm talking with uh, Maeve Ryan, whose new book is out: Humanitarian Governance and the British Anti-Slavery World System. Um, one of the people that put. Um, Thompson in charge of the governorship was William Wilberforce. And I, I guess sitting back and looking at Wilberforce, it's a very famous name, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this, and one of the things that he's telling his new governors is, you know, there's some short-term moral compromises that we have to make here um, for these long-term benefits of these liberated Africans. Uh, it brings up this term that you call gradualism and it comes up again and again and again and it's like abolitionism yeah but it turns into sort of a gradual goal it's it's not something so immediate and that, that's what i found so intriguing about this book is how that kind of morphed forward you care to respond to that at all sure i mean one of the things one of the, that motivated me to to write this book um was to try to understand some of the apparent contradictions and tensions here, you know, there's uh, some very pro- strong professed moral imperatives behind all of this, and the language abolitionists use in their in their communications and their pamphlets and so on. It really suggests a kind of an engagement with the plight of the enslaved person at that really human level and the need to um, you know to do something to save these people. You know, it really that's what comes across as sort of messaging. But it became clear to me, you know, when I really early on started asking this question, okay, but what happens with the people liberated from the slave ships? Um, it became clear to me that the intervention wasn't actually about saving them. You know, it was it was about, you know, for the abolitionists, for those those early elite abolitionists, the kind of parliamentarians like Wilberforce and others, people involved very closely in drafting the Abolition Act and in figuring out what this, um, what, what we call the disposal policy, that disposal of, of, of uh, liberated people through either uh, apprenticeship or enlistment. These elite abolitionists like Wilberforce had their fingerprints all over this. They wrote this because, and it wasn't, they didn't just go along with it. They were deeply involved in crafting this. And, you know, it became clear to me through really looking a lot at their correspondence, their published writings and looking at how things played out. For them, it was about crushing the trade and the humanity they were imagining. You know, they, they, they used the middle passage, that, that, that bit of the triangular slave trade system, the bit between West Africa and the Americas, the bit that, you know, where the 
individual people were being packed onto these slave decks and you know the survivors being sold into you know plantation slavery with a life expectancy that was very very short and so on. there's absolutely awful 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 uh, um, human kind of tragedy that's happening in the middle passage abolitionists are focusing on this they're interested in it and they they use it um as, as a, an, an emotive tool to try to get people to understand what the slave trade is um, and what some of the kind of human cost of their sugar is and so on but they didn't it seems to me anyway that they they weren't actually that focused on saving the people who were on those slave ships for them it was about destroying that system you know ending the kind of preventing the future enslavement of others making sure that africans stayed in the continent of africa and were able to you know pr- again free labor rather than enslaved labor and prove that kind of slavery isn't necessary for the functioning of the global economy and so on and so on so it wasn't when the slave ships were coming ashore, these liberated Africans were kind of at best incidental to the whole enterprise, I think, um, and and at worst, potentially tools to serve a wider purpose. And it's not, this isn't just that they were forgotten. Um, The key point is that abolitionists were really quite alarmed at the idea of just taking enslaved people from a slave ship, putting them ashore and allowing them to be free. It was quite a scary prospect for them because if you think for many of the years of the abolition campaign, the abolition of the slave trade, it starts effectively in 1808. Um, You know, for the first few decades, right up to 1833, slavery itself, the institution of slavery is still legal in the British Empire. So other than Sierra Leone, the rest of the British Empire is legally, um, you know, slavery is still a legal institution. There's no legal slavery in the islands of metropolitan Britain, but elsewhere it's kind of fair game, more or less. And so the rationale for continuing that enslavement of Africans, even though for decades Britons had been quite, you know, clear on the idea that they thought slave trade was terrible and slavery was, you know, morally quite repugnant, Actually, the preservation of that institution of slavery relied upon narratives about the capacity of enslaved people for full freedom. So the rationale is, was for them that enslaved people, people who had been enslaved, were unable to support themselves. They needed to be schooled to reacquire their freedom. And I think that's actually a quote, more or less a direct quote. They needed to be schooled to reacquire the capacity for freedom and to, you know, to be integrated into um, colonial societies. But really, I mean, the problem was that just liberating people from slave ships and allowing them to live freely was just, you know, was quite challenging. So it avoided an awkward conversation about why enslaved people landed from a slave ship in Sierra Leone were capable um, of living independently, but but those laboring in the West Indies or, or elsewhere were not. Um, and and it was, you know, and that disposal system, that policy was also about assimilating these en- enslaved people to British folkways. So it's like integrating them into the colonial economy, preventing them for quite a long time. Those who came to Sierra Leone were prevented by the colonial authorities from from just migrating back to where they had come from, especially those who'd come from, you know, the near nearby uh, clearly wanted to go back to their homes. And, and for many, there was this attempt to prevent that from happening, partly, as I said, to sort of shore up that colonial labor system and also partly to to prove the viability of free labor. Okay, thanks, Maeve. Um, um, I, the, the gradualism thing. Um, Sorry, I didn't address your gradualism point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it really hit hit home um, for me because I think this is a this is very transatlantic. It's also transnational. I, I mean, in the United States, uh, early on, even before the United States uh, became the United States, there was movements to make sure that emancipation occurred, but over time, after there was significant training uh, to become more, um, I don't know, um, within the cultural guidelines at at the time, um, I think you put it on page 40 that um, uh, these liberated Africans must be trained 
gradually so that they could uh, become more British or become cognizant of the empire and the good that it was doing. Uh, it's just remarkable to me, you know, how much of that is going around at this time. Hmm. It's an important part of uh, a lot of, I think, you know, if you kind of zoom out a little bit and look at movements towards uh, really quite significant and painful structural change uh, where people need to make painful adjustments to their lives. I mean, the obvious one, I think, is probably climate change. You know, trying to get people to think differently about how they're consuming and using and creating resources um, and actually make quite substantial changes. Um, it does lend itself to it, making it easier for people to adapt to that. The kind of gradualism argument is employed. And I think, you know, even for it is extraordinary in Britain and the United States too. When you look at the um, the work of anti-slavery campaigners and some of the, um, especially some of those transatlantic linked um, um, organizations, you, you know, you see different types of rationale for extending, you know, and changing the nature of slavery rather than getting rid of it. So in the, in the 1820s, you see this this campaign for the amelioration of slavery, so making the conditions of enslaved people better. You start to see things like, not just in, in British Empire, you start to see, uh, or, or in the United States, things like around free womb laws emerging at different times in the 19th century, this idea that children would, of enslaved women wouldn't be born as slaves. So lots of different adjustments to and tinkering with the problem of slavery and trying to make Make the maybe some of the moral repugnance around it get a bit closer to to what's perceived as the reality of it, but then you know then there's the contrary to that you get these imperatives for just accelerating, and so you see pamphlets, especially towards the late 1820s, people like um, Elizabeth Herrick, I think, um, you know, immediate calling for an immediate, not gradual end to slavery, and actually then as you get closer to the 18, 1833 um, passage of the Emancipation Act in the British Parliament, you start to see some of this getting a bit more traction that actually things haven't changed, um, you know, abolishing the slave trade, cutting off the supply didn't kind of gradually allow um, the plantations to adapt in a slow way and a kind of an economically stable way to free labor. It just didn't happen. Um, and so, you know, abolitionists, those who are interested in, in removing slavery as an institution from the world economic system, just say, well, you know, now it's time to kind of, uh, now it's just time to, to cut it off. Um, and, and that's a, that's considered hugely problematic by a lot of people who, uh, who who still, even decades later, aren't ready for the abolition of slavery. And that's one of the reasons you see the passage of an extraordinary historic amount of compensation money, twenty million pounds in in the in the British currency of eighteen thirty three is 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 voted to compensate the owners um, of, uh, of of enslaved people. So those who had owned them and and um, and, and were losing access to that after the period of um, of transition up to eighteen thirty eight. And actually, there's an amazing project. You're listeners might be interested in this, especially those who've got any British relatives or heritage. Um, there is an amazing project that was run out of the University uh, University College London um, uh, called Legacies of British Slave Ownership. Um, and it was run by a, a professor called Catherine Hall and her colleagues. And the idea behind it was to they went into the National Archives um, in Kew in London and they found all of the, um, the documentary evidence of who had been paid what compensation payments. So you can look up a family and you can find out, you know, did they own you know 10 slaves or did they kind of own a share in a slave or whatever it was you get people all over the country all over ireland too claiming these compensation payments uh, again because of this approach to you know gradual 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 change and then create this kind of financial cushion to try to absorb the blow of that economic transition away from slavery it doesn't work really but uh, you can see the thinking behind it is very much geared towards that 
Yeah, geared, I guess, towards frustration. I mean, uh, coming back a little bit, you, you have these captured slave ships. Britain brings them in uh, to Sierra Leone. Um, over a while, you point out that there's over a hundred spoken languages among these captured uh, and non-liberated Africans. And I'm wondering how language became a barrier towards the attitudes towards these liberated Africans, because I see it happening in your book in Sierra Leone, in Gambia, in St. Helena. Um, what was, uh, was that so problematic? That, that... It's, um, I think it's a problem that manifests itself in different ways in different locations. So if we just talk about Sierra Leone for a moment, this is where by far the greatest number of, uh, of people were brought. And so, and it's also, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it's it's got this expressly anti-slavery legal personality to it from the outset. Uh, it doesn't mean that people don't experience or <laughs> slavery. And actually, there's a a, a lot of um, of contemporary concern about the extent to which slavery is happening kind of out of sight in this colony. But it is this, you know, it, it has that kind of unique um, character and personality to it. And so you have all of these different cultures arriving in, in Sierra Leone. And actually, people go out there in this period to study and to understand, like, you know, linguists and anthropologists going out there to study and to understand some of these cultures uh, and to try to document and record and create um, you know create like dictionaries of languages that they hadn't uh, hadn't um, codified or, or studied before so it's considered extremely interesting um, as a space I mean obviously it creates a number of challenges and one of the things that happens in the um, not immediately but in the early decades one of the governors um, st- uh, takes this idea of creating model communities out of liberated Africans, recognizing that the apprenticeship and enlistment options weren't actually really working for Sierra Leone. It wasn't enough. Um, lots of people were arriving from slave ships, not in a healthy state, not able to, physically able to just be put straight to work in some way. Many are children. Um, for listeners who aren't aware, I'm going to give you a little uh, slight content warning. I'm going to describe a, a slave ship, a slave ship deck to you. Sometimes, you know, not not very high. Certainly not high enough for someone to stand up in. Quite often, people packed in, really jammed in, um, uh, and you know, forced to lay down, even shackled, um, and you know, packed in essentially like like bales of of hay almost, and and then left in this position without being given an opportunity to move very much for long periods of time. Obviously, seasickness, the darkness, the heat. Um, there's a lot of um, you know, there's a lot. It's a it's a very dangerous and disease-ridden sort of space. There's a lot of human excrement and vomit and so on. Um, And people emerge from this space very, very unwell. And there are some graphic descriptions documented by uh, colonial surgeons and others who who are witnessing this and and writing down the sorts of illnesses and and injuries, kind of crush injuries as well, created by especially smaller people like children and and, and smaller adults being crushed um, as the ships are pitching and rolling. So... You know, these people have been through profound trauma. They're not, uh, you know, physical and, and emotional, psychological trauma. They're not necessarily going to be, you know, labor ready in the first instance. So in Sierra Leone, it takes a while, but this starts to uh, manifest in different kinds of governance practices that deviate from the stated policy. And one of the governors that in, embarks in one of these uh, is a governor called uh, Charles McCarthy, who has these really utopian, uh, grandiose ideas of what you might consider kind of developmental imperialism. And he's um, he has this idea, which he inherits from a few of his predecessors, to create these model villages, to set these out in a kind of 
British um, uh, to, to set them out to look aesthetically like a like a model British village with a you know village uh, you know with, with, sorry with a church at the center of the village and a ticking clock and everybody dressed in uh, you know British clothes and wearing the hats and all this kind of thing. So it's supposed to aesthetically mimic this kind of British uh, idealized Christianized community, and they experiment with different ways to uh, to govern this. One of the systems that they use they develop a partnership with the Church Missionary Society, and these missionaries come out. From actually a lot of them from Germany and through the uh, through the auspices of the Church Missionary Society, a few a few British too, they come out and their church um, the kind of religious role is, is twinned with a secular role as the managers of these villages, and they're supposed to have oversight and this kind of paternalistic guidance role, but also um, you know a, a, a sort of um, the opportunity to act as um, disciplinarians and so on to try to keep people in check and and to to force really the creation of this community as much as is possible so in in so doing some of the villages were set up with distinct language groups um, and so people from different uh, because because enslaved people on the transatlantic slave trade you know were being taken from not just coastal communities um, but you know even further inland and you know we, we know from some of the projects that have looked at African names and have also taken some DNA samples and so on from the remains of um, uh, of people who we know to have been um, uh, victims of the slave trade we know that people are coming from everywhere from Senegal maybe even north of Senegal down to Angola or even further south and, and really quite far inland. So you've got these really diverse language groups and sometimes being crafted consciously into their own distinct groups. And sometimes it was a ship, you know, a ship together would form, would be sent to form a village and it really kind of varied. But we do know that one of the ways that um, that liberated Africans themselves uh, accommodated this or, or um, uh, sort of rather um, adapted to this was that they formed what we call benefit societies. And sometimes these benefit societies would be around ethnic groups. Um, but most people, it seems, uh, came from who came from ships maintained a bond with the people who had survived the slave ship with them. And those benefit societies could be mutual kind of mutual support societies, you know, financial assistance when someone fell into hardship and so on and so on. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting in different ways to navigate this. I would say that the colonial sources, um, uh, you know, the archival sources created by by the empire and by its agents probably had like no visibility really comparatively of how this was all done. Um, they weren't particularly interested, I think, beyond the challenges of just governing and controlling. Um, we're going to shift real quickly here because we're running out of time. One of the most interesting aspects of this is that this experiment, um, I'm going to call it that, um, in Sierra Leone is kind of exported elsewhere. Uh, the British West Indies, uh, there's the Bahamas and then there's Trinidad. And I'm wondering if you could show that huge variance of what happened to these liberated Africans in just those two places. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What I tried to do in the book is kind of tease out the difference in what were the likely outcomes for an individual depending on where where they went so i point to what i call this archipelago of different establishments um and and that includes you know, gambia river it includes the west indies and various different sites around the caribbean and so on and, and as well as um saint helena and cape town and the point that i'm kind of making here one of the points i'm making is the difference between what happened to people who were brought to uh, a slave owning society or a society where slavery was you know deeply part of uh, of the uh, economic makeup of the place and in places where, where that wasn't the case and so um you know looking at uh, at the bahamas for example in the bahamas you see really quite different um 
approaches to what you see in Trinidad. Trinidad plantation economy, labor hungry, um, and especially after the end of, of legal slavery in the British Empire, increasingly um, struck with labor shortages and problems around um, uh, around labor supply on those sugar plantations. Conversely, in the Bahamas, the Bahamas is, is known, uh, there's, there's a, a term, I'm trying to remember who actually said this, we call the Sierra Leone of the uh, Northern uh, Caribbean, because you see there a little uh, smaller scale experiments to what you see in Sierra Leone, but really um, experiments that, experiments in resettling in uh, groups of people in these kind of villages without um, without disposing of them, inverted commas, as uh, apprentices or or as enlisted people, but actually resettling them in a village with, with some degree, perhaps even quite high degree of, of autonomy and 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 the ability to control their own sort of destinies. And so, in the Bahamas, you see like much more on a much much smaller scale to what we see in the um, in Sierra Leone, and you and 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 in in. Um, it, it, this doesn't. Well, I suppose the point. One of the points that I make in this part of the book is I, it's not a. It's not an experiment that necessarily lasts, and that after um, eighteen thirty-five or so, and especially as this labour shortage is starting to bite, um, you know, there are there are demands from other islands for any future liberated Africans to be brought there rather than to the Bahamas, where you know the, the, there's a certain amount of resentment amongst the local colonial population that these free uh, liberated people are being allowed to form their own settlements there. And so in 1835, there's a passage of a new treaty between um, Britain and Spain and a new abolition, uh, slave trade abolition treaty, which gives, um, which changes a little bit the nature of uh, the agreement that had previously existed. And it basically allows Britain to take liberated Africans from Havana who were liberated by the courts there uh, through their bilateral treaty um, to, to take those liberated Africans and resettle them in British territories. And there's a bit of a tussle between the different types of, uh, of colony about where they should go. And one of the colony, one of the colonial governors in the Bahamas, you know, he's making a case for how it's absolutely in the interest of these individuals that they be brought to the Bahamas where they can live this more independent life and where they, you know, have, you know, their predecessors have proven themselves able, able to do so and then the demands coming from those uh, colonies with labor shortages and that kind of sugar plantation uh, output demand so so tell me Maeve what's um, what's next for you what is next um so I've got another book in the works which is called subtle consul and I'm looking at the emergence of the modern consular service I'm really interested in the different roles that consuls played in different sites uh, during the, the research for this book um, uh, for, for humanitarian governance book I came across a lot of consular sources especially in Brazil and in Cuba um, and elsewhere where you know they were one of the primary sources of information gathering, Playing a kind of low-level diplomacy role, and even when diplomatic relations had broke down a bit, you know, the the uh, colonial um, uh, consuls often were able to maintain a sort of uh, presence and certainly the ability to influence things at that lower level. So, kind of a a, a consular officer blends that um, trade and, and diplomatic role a little bit and that information gathering. So, I've just become really interested in the role that they have played in the emergence of what we call the informal empire. So, really at that kind of peripheries of, of what Britain is doing. Um, um, so there's that. Um, I'm also working on a project on war and slavery because I'm in a department of war studies. I realized that the, uh, you know, the 
there are so many interconnections between the phenomenon of war and the phenomenon of slavery and the two literatures actually don't really speak very well to each other. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking about a project to study, you know, over a few hundred years, the interconnections and interrelations between war and slavery in, and, and the ways in which one has fueled the other and vice versa. And yeah, and constant, constantly expanding the center for grand strategy. You know, we've got all these new projects coming up and lots of new opportunities to engage with policy audiences and thinking about different strands. But really, the, my main priority in the next year is to get to some more conferences. I really miss talking to people face to face and uh, sharing ideas and learning from other people's work. Curse you, COVID. All right. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Uh, th- those are th- what you're going to be doing next just sounds so brilliant. Thank you so much uh, for letting us know. Um, This is Joe Calder. I've been speaking with Maeve Ryan, her new book, Humanitarian Governance and the British Anti-Slavery World System. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.